Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. This podcast about the sea change in what's thought of as gourmet dining first appeared on the New Books Network, www.newbooksnetwork.com, on their New Books in Food channel. When you imagine a gourmet experience, what comes to mind? An elegant restaurant, perhaps, with a single candle flickering at the center of a luminous white tablecloth? Maybe a quartet plays somewhere in the romantic distance as the waiter slips a perfectly plated appetizer of escargot before you, and you proceed to nuzzle them out of their shells with silver tongs and that dainty fork. Perhaps this isn't your image. Perhaps yours includes a view of the Pacific Shore, or the skyline of Manhattan, or a wine list as long as an actuarial table. But does your image include a taco truck? When Food & Wine magazine declared Roy Choi one of its best new chefs for 2010 for the food he was serving up in his Kogi barbecue truck, it signaled something like a sea change had happened in our idea of gourmet eating. And that's the very change that Alison Perlman explores in her book, Smart Casual, The Transformation of Gourmet Restaurant Style in America. As she puts it, between 1975 and 2010, the style of gourmet dining in America transformed. Increasingly, restaurants of fine dining incorporated food, decor, and other elements formerly limited to the casual dining experience. The result, as Perlman shows us, is a gourmet experience, quote, replete with eroded hierarchies and pointed style contrasts, convergences of hot and ordinary. And, we might add, taco trucks. In a keen investigation of every element of the dining experience, from menus to molecular gastronomy, Perlman's book reveals the surprising nature of what fine dining means for us today. Before I was an art historian, I was a a lover of restaurants. Uh, This is, you know, even predates my choice to become an art historian. And and this book is kind of a fusion of the interests. I mean, I I really start with a love of restaurants, um, uh, which I started to have as a child. My parents used to bring me with them. Uh, Thank goodness. Thank thank you, parents. And, um, you know, at the time, of course, these places to me were seemed magical, you know, they seemed enchanting places. But of course, you know, as I grew older, got to have a little more of a critical eye and started to develop, to develop a sort of a, a sense for cultural analysis and, and decoding things, I, I became, well, no less enchanted with restaurants, but far more aware that the magic I thought I saw was the product of labor, was, was real, uh, and uh, that this, this, this theater that was being constructed was, was something that, that I uh, was, was, took work and uh, stagecraft and thought, and of course, this, this got, got me even more interested in this topic. And as an art historian, I have an appreciation for, for stagecraft and for aesthetics. And uh, the restaurant is just a goldmine. Um, it's a goldmine topic for somebody <clears throat> who's interested in the vis- visual 
uh, a world of us of, of the aesthetic. Uh, I, I find myself uh, incredibly f- uh, fascinated by every aspect of the wa- the vast visible spectrum of restaurants. There's not just architecture and interior design, but graphic design. You know, I mean, l- menus, for example, uh, graphics, logos, the, th- the even you know the the theatrical aspects, the theater of service, um, food itself, the composition of food. Um, there's so much to talk about there's so much to think about uh, uh when you talk about restaurants so it has opened up for me i think uh as an art historian uh, a whole world of possibilities in terms of research and thinking about uh this and because restaurants are so ubiquitous such ubiquitous institutions in our society it feels even more um significant to me to to deal with this stuff I, I think I've I've had many a friend who has said something to the effect of coming back from a restaurant, oh, the restaurant is a work of art, or oh, that meal was a work of art. And right. one of the things that's wonderful about this book is you take that almost literally with the degree of attention and analysis you bring to it. And I think that that, that quick survey you've given us of all the facets um, is part of the pleasure of the book, of just seeing you know dimension after dimension of what it means to sit down in a restaurant and experience it open up. Oh, thank you, thank you. This this is what I hope I hope to do. I mean, there aren't that many. There are increasingly uh, there there are art historians uh, who are who are getting into and thinking about uh, food and restaurants. I think because the field of food studies has opened up to so many disciplines, you're going to see more of it. Uh, but but when I started to do this, I think there were really not very many. And uh, but I hope there will be more. And you find yourself to a large extent in conversation with sociologists. Uh, th- through and through. I mean, there are probably more references to sociologists in my book than there are to anything really <laughs> related to art history, actually. Uh, it's, uh, it's the art historian's eye, but it's the sociological uh, concepts of um, uh, about the, especially, the, for instance, the concept of omnivorousness that comes from sociology. So, so that would be, I think, an, an interesting place to start with the book. So a lot of listeners who are interested in food and who might be listening to the New Books Network's food channel would have an idea of what omnivorousness means through Michael Pollan and his work, the dilemma of what to eat when you can eat anything. And you have a very different idea of the omnivore's dilemma. Absolutely. I think it's actually a different a different sense in which uh, Michael Pollan means the term. And he really is talking, I think, about the biological omnivore um, who who uh, who can eat, eat everything in that in a biological sense. But there's a cultural de- a cultural uh, definition of omnivore as well. And that's really more of uh, the the lineage that I'm coming from is the the what, what I'm rooted in, I think, in, in sociology is this sociology of taste, um, cultural preference. References. And so the omnivore I'm talking about is an omnivore uh, cultural consumer, a consumer of culture rather than uh, of a biological foodstuff. So uh, th- this concept of the omnivore comes out of actually work from the early 90s by uh, a pair of sociologists, uh, Richard Peterson and Albert Simkus, who, who, does, who basically did a study of, this wasn't related to food at all, actually. It was, it was, it was actually related to um, a study of musical tastes, musical preferences in, in the United States. And they did a study of uh, musical preference by uh, occupation, um, a sort of an occupation uh, was the, the index was to occupations, which was sort of a, a way of defining 
class in a way or social a kind of combination of social status and class and they found that people in occupations they came along with maybe a higher income and a and a high social status uh were not as they expected or ha- as had previously been been talked about in sociology most most um famously associated with the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu the notion that uh, higher classes or higher um, ranking uh, folks in society would 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 have a, a taste for highbrow art or high highbrow uh, music in this case, uh, and the the two sociologists I'm talking about from the early 90s uh, found that that was not the case. In fact, that that people um, of a, a high rank f- had very varied musical tastes. They liked um, classical music, but they also liked various forms of popular music. And so uh, they, they called this this tendency, which they found particularly pronounced in these higher ranking or, you know, kind of high status occupations, to be um, a, a specific pattern among them that was about the range of their consumption, what defined them culturally, and their, was their range of consumption not uh, a, an exclusive sort of even snobbish association of themselves with with highbrow tastes only. And this idea of omnivorous uh, consumption and preferences and taste is exactly parallel to what I'm talking about with the foodie um, sensibility, which is precisely omnivorous. Yes, it's it takes us right to the story you have to tell, which is uh, you begin with in 1975 with Chez Panisse, right? Mm-hmm. And we suddenly start to find ourselves moving towards a very different idea of what it means to enter into a gourmet restaurant, and it's not highbrow, right? What would highbrow have been, and how did we lose it? Yeah, well, the, <laughs> that's the story, right? What what highbrow would have been is a kind of uh, restaurants that, and the standard was set in some ways by uh, post-war, post-World War II places that, that had a real almost, um, uh, you know, giant status uh, at the time, like Le Pavillon in New York. Uh, I guess on the on the West Coast, maybe a, 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 cor- a corresponding uh, place might have been Ernie's in San Francisco. These places that had uh, were French, first of all, French food, um, French menus, often the language of the menu itself was would be French um, and or sort of, you know, at least continental uh, menus with French language. So you kind of had to had to be familiar with that or comfortable with that. Uh, there was a certain kind of certain traditional forms of luxury prevailed, uh, traditions upheld in terms of restaurant decor. Oh, the chand- there are certain things, chandeliers, fresh flowers, you know, a certain uh, maybe silk, uh, you know, velvet or silk uh, curtains. Um, and a curious maitre d'. And a maitre d was a central central character to the whole thing. In fact, really, probably the the, the most powerful personality of the restaurant was the maitre d, as opposed to the chef, which becomes really the 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 new focal point of the the new style of gourmet restaurant. That the chef is the central personality, as opposed to the maitre d. So Chez Panisse is an imp- one of those one of those turning point 
places, um, certainly for, for that, uh, but also because of a, for a style that was much more in love with the, instead of the, the grande cuisine, you know, the, the old cuisine, French old cuisine, it was in love with the cuisine bourgeoise of the, you know, the, 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 the um, and even taking uh, elements later, it, Chez Panisse went through various phases of its, of its um, menus too, but uh, at every point was innovative in the process, uh, by the way, including in its architecture. I mean, at, at one point, although Chez Panisse opened in 71 uh, and got that incredible press recognition in, in 75, which I think was an important moment of influence for it. But in 1980, uh, the, 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 the place uh, was the, one of the first um, restaurants to create an open kitchen, which which uh, was so profoundly influential, ultimately as well, and and that that really was another key innovative moment for that restaurant. So you take us through this journey, and and one of the chapters of the book kind of looks at these landmark restaurants and landmark moments within their history, mm-hmm. um, and we arrive at one point at a at a taco truck, yeah, which receives oh, yeah. a Michelin star, and. Uh, and the prose at that moment is just delightfully kind of perplexed at what has happened as you begin to analyze it. Um, so, so what is the significance of the, the taco truck to your argument? Well, this is interesting, the taco trick. Okay, so you're talking about the chef is Roy Choi, uh, who's an L- a Los Angeles-based chef uh, who is still, uh, still innovating and doing interesting things here, by the way. Uh, and that, But the taco truck started it all for, for Roy Choi and, and for, for a lot of things. Um, f- uh, it was actually a, what, what I started with there, I think you're, what you're referring to, is that there's this uh, a recognition that uh, – the the Kogi barbecue uh, taco truck is what it's called. The Kogi truck um, received in 2010. It was actually a food and wine magazine. Uh, one of the ten best chefs. It was a. It was uh, he was you know he was one of the ten. And at that time, uh, this was before he had opened up all kinds of restaurants, which he has now. But he was primarily known for. Uh, starting a food truck and and this food truck craze that everybody is still very familiar with uh, and i 'm and now every town in America and be well beyond america uh, well beyond the United States has food trucks and uh, but he 's kind of considered the ground uh, the, the the patient zero of the food truck <laughs> movement you know what he was doing of course, and what was worthy of worthy of recognition by food and wine magazine the gourmet uh, recognition here involved was that this was probably the most casual, the most informal thing you could possibly have given a fine dining chef award to for someone who was doing something culinarily experimental, culinarily groundbreaking with food in a in a taco truck. And he was making what uh, was basically Korean tacos, among other things, mixing uh, the traditions of Korean cuisine and Mexican cuisine, which are really, really huge out here in Los Angeles, and it was a very Los Angeles concept in, in that sense. And, uh, and he was making something really new, really delicious. And uh, just, I think, the innovation, understanding that, that what really mattered here was innovation. And he was an innovator. And this is 
also really important to this culture, this new, the foodie culture that uh, became the, the dominant foodie culture that we still have today is the emphasis on innovation and uh, a kind of self-expression and an openness to cultural diversity. All of these are elements that play a really large role in the culture of the new, the foodie, the contemporary foodie, uh, foodie scene. Um, so he, he is a poster child for that. And it made sense that he would be recognized. Uh, now that you think, even though at the time it seemed kind of rather amazing that, that a taco truck, uh, somebody who was known for a taco truck would kind of, would get this, an honor that's you, that usually goes to, a, a fine dining chefs and did go to otherwise, uh, fine dining chefs in the group of 10 that were uh, featured on that in that issue. And what what's quite wonderful about the, one of the journeys the books makes is that you take us from a cuisine and an environment that that you know maybe it's a stretch to say this but something like Escoffier would have recognized and suddenly we're in a place where there's a taco truck and we're still talking about gourmet eating. Um, And that's the moment that I think you're trying to launch a definition of what it now means to eat gourmet, to do fine dining. Right, right. And, and, and actually, you know, if you think about what's going on at the same, what, what, what is interesting, too, is it's the, it's the taco truck, but it's also the French laundry at the same time. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which the very, uh, the still formal uh, and really fine, really high style cuisine is still being appreciated. It's not, it, I, I don't want to uh, overstress the point uh, about the casual because it's, it's actually the simultaneity of these two things. It's the fact that a restaurant like uh, uh, this very, very high style, very um, uh, intricate, labor intensive, super composed um, uh, white tablecloth situation that you would have in a restaurant, say, like the French Laundry in the Napa Valley, uh, which would, you know, could have at I mean, simultaneously at the same time as the the, the taco truck of Roy Roy Choi, uh, that those two things are having an influence on the gourmet culture at the same time, and I think that's really the omnivorous aspect, right? It's that the the, the foodie culture is able to or wants to appreciate both at the same time, um, and so somebody like so I don't want to say be suggest that that the the formality is gone because in in a lot of ways it's not gone it although it changes what formality becomes does also change itself and that's also something true so it's the it's the casual uh aspect the informal uh innovators like Roy Choi in the in the case of the taco truck but at the same time it's also a new kind of formality is emerging at the same time that is new and different and i would say that one of the one of the constants in the story you had to tell as as the style of restaurants in America changes and you begin to, to note them is that cultural and economic capital don't go away as key factors, right? Money and status are still very much a part of this story. Absolutely. It's just that the, the, the rules of the game have changed. You know, it's the, it's the st- we still have a hierarchy. We're, that, that's really it. It's just the terms of that hierarchy. What counts? What matters, what what the status markers are, have changed. 
And, and what's, what's really, I think, a key shift is the shift away from uh, uh, mastery or having to have mastered. In other words, to show your status, if you are a diner, um, to show your status previously, it was about mastering traditional forms, uh, you know, whether they were sartorial conventions of, you know, dress codes, whether they were a behavioral knowing which fork to use, you know, um, being, you know, being a, being comfortable with the kind of um, traditions of service, knowing to ex- what to expect uh, in, a, in a restaurant, being able to read the French menu, things like that, that defined or, you know, basically sorted out the people who belonged from the people who did not belong, you know, and then uh, that what changed was you have now, if you think about the equivalent in formality, uh, I guess the equivalent in terms of high style cuisine would be, say, a restaurant like Alinea in Chicago. I mean, here is the pinnacle in some ways of of, 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 of still a, a sort of fine dining idea. But it is so radically different as to what separates the, di- the diner as a sophisticated diner in that situation is completely different from what it would have been, say, Pre seventy five. I mean, if you are are to, if you're you know a sophisticated diner of uh, at Alinea in Chicago is somebody who who in, in, it knows to expect the unexpected and is not and is interested in is is just going there to to be adventurous and uh, is willing to accept the you know the the whatever things might come because they know that. They're dealing with innovation rather than tradition. I think the emphasis on innovation and appreciation of something new. And so you'll find if you go to a place like that, that even the utensils that you get are are unfamiliar and you're not expected to know how to use them. They'll tell you how to use the utensil. In fact, because they 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 designed the utensil, which looks like nothing from uh, you know you've ever seen before. Also, part of the innovative nature of the restaurant, right, is the is the the actual serviceware that you're using that has been specially designed for that restaurant. So it's not. Do you know how to use that fork? It's of course you don't know how to use the fork. Let me show <laughs> and 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 don't expect you know you wouldn't expect that, but it's your openness to trying the strange fork uh, that that really defines um, you. And also the fa- also another thing, a new kind of a, te- a willingness to to attend to the minutia of the chef's work and the the and even the sommelier's work the, the you know after all they've become really important players too uh in in crafting that dining experience so it's 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 the you're you are somebody who is now kind of willing to pay attention to the work and appreciate the work and the innovation and the what the artistry that uh, you're going to be receiving over what could be up to a three-hour, four-hour meal. <laughs> so it, there's a there's a new kind of demanding, there's a new demand for attentiveness, and that's almost like um, that's a separator too. That's a, a distinguisher uh, socially. So do you have the capacity to? pay attention to these subtleties do you have the capacity to and these may be unfamiliar things in fact they should be unfamiliar things so a real difference in in what the new formality looks like versus the old 
Well, I've been wanting to ask you this question because you also write about art. And so as I was reading this analysis, which I, I think is fascinating, right? There's something about, therefore, the role of the eater and and how does normative judgment figure in anymore? It used to be that a discerning diner, you, you could take a traditional dish and you could say, this chef is doing it beautifully, right? That would be a kind of traditional model of, oh, I'm at a French restaurant. I've never tasted this particular dish done so well. Therefore, this is good. When innovation becomes the standard, mm-hmm. this is something that I have never seen before, mm-hmm. right? Good and bad tend to get, the rhetoric of good and bad tends to get replaced by something like surprising, uh, right heretofore unseen um but Mm -hmm. suddenly you know it's very much a kind of i almost want to say passive position of the diner to to appreciate rather Mm -hmm. than to judge to accept oh i i I, perhaps you're you're maybe you're suggesting that that if i if i understand you correctly you might maybe saying that when there's a standard you can judge is this good or bad based on my knowledge of the standard? In other words, as opposed to if, if, I, if, if I am faced with something I've never seen before, I have no basis for judgment, so all I can do is accept its newness. Is that, is that kind of what, what you're which I Which I often find will be a, a response that I will have to certain things, and, you know, conceptual things in contemporary art or something. I, I will shrug and say, right. fascinating, um, right. you know, and then there's, you know, I see something in molecular gast- gastronomy being served on a utensil that I've never seen before, and I shrug, and I say, fascinating, but there's very little context in which to place it besides innovation and newness. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that, that still somehow the uh, critics and, and even us as individuals still find a way to judge, don't we? I mean, I find judgment ha- – judgment doesn't seem to have gone away. Uh, in spite of all of this uh, p- potential problem that you rightly point out, uh, I think that, that in spite of that, we see everywhere judgment. Um, and just from a personal standpoint, I think that you – when faced with something like that, uh, I, I myself, I mean, also get judgmental, and I find myself judging on the basis of whether I think – more sort of meta kind of larger artistic criteria about is this necessary, does this function well, am I – is it pleasing, am I uh, – is it um, – is it – is it interesting enough? Was it worth doing? You know, there's still some of these larger questions that, um, that you know, there, because I think you can still separate, or at least I find that I'm still able to separate something that was done purely as a novelty or as a gimmick or something like um, that, that was not enhancing, enhancing anything, but seemed merely for the show of doing it. And then the ridiculousness of that gesture becomes apparent. <laughs> and so there you have innovation for innovation's sake, rather right. than newness for some purpose other than itself. Right. And in fact, this was precisely the, the criticism that was leveled against Nouvelle Cuisine when it, came, when it got to become worthy of parody by the early 80s in the United States, because there was a point, I mean, this, the in the United States, um, Nouvelle Cuisine was kind of saw of uh, became faddish a bit after the French 
trend, which was earlier. And, um, and there were, were the imitators, you know, just as today there are the imitators of the, the molecular, uh, you know, the, the molecular cuisine or, or uh, modern, what I guess, modernist cuisine. Now they seem to like to call it uh, modernist cuisine. And they, um, uh, they can be bad, you know, like pointless foams <laughs> or, you know, things that, 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 you're trying to redo, reimagine a dish or deconstruct a familiar dish, but it wasn't worth, re- de- there was nothing gained by the deconstruction, you know, um, things like that happen all the time. And I think that's just what happens with, with trends. Uh, but, but, but I, but I still think that, that, you know, those, those kinds of distinctions between, between is this aesthetically, working or is this something really substantially new or is this just a tinkering around the edges you i think that you can still figure out and as just an individual trying to to uh, you know exercise judgment and and you know aesthetic discernment over these kinds of things which which we all do we inevitably do it i don't think the stars on yelp will ever go away no no we love that (laughs) Play judge. I mean, that's one of the things that, that delights me so much about these programs, like you know, The Voice. You know, these. I mean, the, the competition programs. You know, the reality shows uh, where you find competing uh, uh, singers or something like that. Right? We we love to judge, and um, and I th- I think insofar as those shows uh, can be can get us to appreciate the artistry or the craft, I guess you could say, behind um, these these you know, the work that it, that it takes to, to do these things and get us to appreciate and understand more what goes into it and the sense of the, the labor, but also the creativity, uh, the, the, we're kind of enriched by judgment in that, in that sense, the more we get to sort of understand what's, what's involved. So, uh, I, I, it's, it's worth it. It's worth, it's worth trying to, trying to judge. I think that the, the competition shows that, that, feature food or that's all the more so because at least it, you know when people are competing through singing or designing new fashions you mm-hmm. can see it you can hear it so you have a standard in, you know a personal standard against which you can judge the judges but when you can't taste the food um, that seems to be a big part of it just you know suddenly you see the the pleasure of the spectacle of watching judging well you um, know you, you bring up a really important point and and actually something really fascinating for me about contemporary food culture is how visual it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think this is why I feel even more excited about as an art historian dealing with this material, because, you know, it, it's food production has become more and more visual. I mean, that isn't to say that it isn't tasted. I mean, of course, obviously it's still about taste, but um, insofar as you have uh, the, the, the machinery of, of social media, uh, you have both the consumers themselves, you know, obviously the food, you know, but pictures of your food have become posting pictures of your food as be, have become as probably as common as posting pictures of yourself uh, at or this your point. children. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Of your pets. Right. Um, and that, that that has become <clears throat> an incredible uh, uh, visual culture machine. And um, so the fa- the food uh, the consumers are doing it, but also fascinatingly, the food producers are doing it. I, I One of the, the sort of little phenomena that I have find 
fascinating now is increasingly the restaurants and top restaurants kind of getting into the game of video production. I mean, they're putting up things on YouTube, uh, little short films, little productions that uh, they, they've become video producers, film producers in a way, in addition to food producers. So this is a new kind of phenomenon which tells you how important the visual the visual is um, now as, as part of uh, the food experience. So this might be a, an extension of, uh, of a phenomenon that you devote a lot of attention to in the book, uh, which is the exhibition kitchen. You mentioned it in passing. Uh, right. But here's this moment where you can actually see supposedly behind the scenes um, mm-hmm. to, to get educated on how a master chef would work, um, to have the thrill of encountering uh, this kind of artistry as it happens. Exactly. And yet. <laughs> I knew there was an end yet. <laughs> and yet. Right. So there's this. Okay. So, so the exhibition kitchen, I guess if, if, if it, it pretends to show you the kitchen, right? It, mm-hmm. that's, that's the conceit, right? It, it pretends to open up the kitchen to your view as a diner uh, so that you can see in to how the food is made. I mean, that's the basic uh, pretense of the exhibition kitchen. Uh, but the exhibition is doing so much more than that. And uh, I think th- this this I pay attention to quite a bit in the book, as, as, as you say. And uh, how talk about stagecraft. Um, and what's fascinating about the, they're designed in a very particular way, uh, for the most part, of course, there are different types of exhibition kitchens, we have different models, different, different variations that exist, there's the, um, there are kitchens that uh, are open to the entire dining room. And that's kind of a stage like kitchen, you have situations where there is like a counter, um, a kitchen counter type of uh, an arrangement where diners sit over a counter like a, as if they're at a bar and they sit there and eat and they see directly into the kitchen. Very much more intimate situation. Uh, and there's also, of course, the variation uh, known as the chef's table, which is sometimes actually inside a very special table, which you usually have to pay more for to sit actually sit inside the kitchen itself. And that's, of course, that can be the most prestigious of all. Uh, talk about a turnaround, by the way, in 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 taste. Um, you know, back in the day that I that I say we we moved away from uh, sitting even near the kitchen was 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 a was like you got the worst seat in the house. You know, uh, obviously the maitre d didn't like you or thought you were unimportant. You know, to put you in such a bad seat, but but now. You you want to pay a hundred dollars more per person so that you can sit inside the kitchen. <laughs> you know this is a this is a complete reversal, but it says a lot about about what the kitchen means to people. Um, first of all, what what this theater is 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 in a way doing. Um, it's it's certainly about a kind of chef worship, but at the same time, uh, it's it's the chef presented in a very idealized manner, and that's that's what. Uh, I try to argue is that, you know, it it, it is a a form of chef worship, but it's also a very particular, almost kind of mystification of the chef's work uh, or uh, kitchen labor, which is identified with the the profession of the chef. And um, it does this in a variety of ways through the stagecraft of the actual design of these kitchens. 
uh, the way that they're structured, what you can see as a diner and what you cannot see, what they sh- what they tend to show and highlight in terms of the work that's done in the kitchen or uh, and work that's done so-called off stage. Um, there's a lot of on stage, off stage dynamics with these uh, with these open kitchens that are fascinating and say a lot about what it is that is being presented as a version of the chef's work, version of kitchen kitchen work, and what's being concealed, what's being downplayed. So there's a, there's definitely a mystification going on, um, a desire to see the the work of uh, the kitchen work in a, in a way that, um, uh, you know, actually what it comes down to is it's a highlighting of the most sensual, the most fast moving, um, the most small scale, the individual plate, the scale of individual plate presentation and plate uh, present present uh, plating. Uh, and, you know, the 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 part where the people working right at the edge of kitchen and 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 diner uh, or or table uh, are doing work that appears to be the most um artistic and uh, in the sense of plating in the sense of composing uh, as if a paint as if painting um on the plate and that's a very late stage in cooking that's a very particular stage in cooking. Most of the cooking has already been done. Most of the, you know, carving up of the animal and a lot of the disgusting sorts of work and a lot of the, the slow moving, uh, stock making things take hours, uh, gross and disgusting and slow and industrial scale, large pots stage of the work has largely happened off stage, you know? As far, um, as far as I know, the French Laundry does still not offer a dishwasher's table. Oh, oh, <laughs> where does. you can go in and wash the dishes that are coming out of the dining room get cleaned. <laughs> um, you're right yeah. there next to the steam and the power yeah. washers. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. That's it. That's it. That's the one. <laughs> Well, it, it seems then kind of counterintuitive um, if, if we're, we're appreciating the artistry of these chefs as mystified as it is, and we're looking at these transformations, you know, that, that we're being staged to, or we're being set up to appreciate um, a kind of production of mastery and, and mystery and, you know, the chef artist, that the chef artist would be making hamburgers and macaroni and cheese. Uh, yeah. you, you also have an interesting comfort food and how this fits into the, to the vision of fine dining today. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 an interesting thing. Comfort food, and by the way, I st- I can't believe that I still find this term in use. Um, I'm I thought it would go away, but actually, it, it's still it's still there. I still still hear it. Um, I thought it would have sort of worn out its welcome by now, but it has been chugging along for uh, well over. Well, my goodness, um, it's been around for quite a while uh, since since actually the mid seventies uh, and. But but it really got going in the '90s, and uh, and 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 then you know exploded in the 2000s. This term comfort food, and it always seems to be sort of used in 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 a similar way. Um, it it see it it something about familiar the familiar, uh, but also the sense of of solace of comfort. Obviously, of, of, but really it comes down to familiarity. 
a sense of uh, all-inclusive comfort, uh, sort of almost like a social comfort, that something is being comforted that is, uh, that needs to be uh, comforted about us through the inclusiveness or being, um, uh, and, and, and treated as familiars and familiality. So this, this quality of comfort food, uh, what's interesting about it is it gets applied to all kinds of food. Um, it gets applied to any kind of common food, and it could be from any tradition. Uh, it has gotten to be applied to um, uh, things that are like hamburgers, as you point out, hamburgers, mac and cheese. Uh, these kind, that's a type of food. It's a that's a, a type of I would call a massified food, food that's that's broadly familiar that has become part of our industrialized um, food system. Part of the what's available um, and associated, not with any, no longer with any one particular ethnic group, uh, but is instead a kind of massified, a product of the modern, the modern food system. But there's also comfort food being used to, to describe what some people call slow food, and a food that is associated with traditions of region, regional traditions of indigenous uh, and 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 pre-modern. The, the, you know, rooted traditions of food also being called comfort food. So in a way, we have the embrace of foodies of both types of foods with, under the umbrella of comfort food. So comfort and, and these are contradictory things, by the way. That's what's one of the fascinating things about this is that they are contradictory f- uh, sources. One, you know, slow food, in a sense, right, is about a worship of that the traditional indigenous rooted regional uh, tradition that does not get massified, uh, but precisely resists being massified. Whereas fast food, right, in a sense, is is the is the modern industrialized, you know, crossing boundaries, re- disregarding region um, kind of food. But that's equally embraced in in this. In this situation, so uh, you have to wonder what is going on with this umbrella term. What kind of differences is it uh, sort of blanketing over? And and that's that's something that I definitely deal with in in the book. That there's a there's some kind of cultural tension, and I, I relate it to a kind of increasing pluralism in our society that is, in a sense, comforted by. Uh, in part comforted by the massified foods, that this is actually something we can all recognize in spite of our cultural differences, in spite of uh, the, 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 the great deal of pluralism in our culture ethnically that we, that we have, which has increased over the decades quite strongly, especially in places where gourmet culture is concentrated in urban areas. Uh, so, so in a sense, I, I, I speculate on that, that, that this is comforting, that comfort food is, more, is comforting in a cultural sense, that we recognize, we hang on to something that unites us. But at the same time, um, the diversity, at the same time, the diversity of comfort food ethnically on the slow side of the spectrum is a, also a way that foodies can be cosmopolitan, can, can uh, distinguish themselves uh, as sophisticates at the same time. So I think that these two things are really um, both serving a function in terms of, you know, the embrace of them is, are both serving a kind of cultural function that's important for the foodie, food, for foodie demo, you know, the foodie demo, you could say. 
Uh, yeah, and I'd like to I'd like to emphasize for our, our listeners that one of the things you do in the book, which is surprising, um, is that you connect some of these uh, very we could say small scale trends happening inside restaurants with huge changes in the way our nation thinks about itself over the last couple of decades. So you hook it up with changes in American demographics, with economics, with education, with the way the workforce has changed from manufacturing jobs to the creative class. And so there's this sense in which you can go very, very closely from the, a kind of microanalysis of how the menus are now working um, to the way in which our country has changed over the last 30 years. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, there's definitely, <clears throat> definitely a big project of the book is to make that connection, <clears throat> is to make that connection between uh, these things that we find stylistically going on in the restaurant scene and this larger cultural shift. Because yes, some, some of what uh, we see in the restaurant culture can be explained by talking about the restaurant industry, about specifically consumers of the restaurant of, of, of gourmet restaurants, the foodies, for example, in that specific culture. But, uh, but I think that um, I try to put foodie culture in a larger context, too. And there's a lot of the traits that they exhibit, for instance, the appreciation, the worship of chefs, the particular worship of chefs, for example, the, sh- the figure of the chef and the way it's wor- the way that figure is worshipped <clears throat> is a is is along the lines that are the very values of a sort of meritocracy culture. Um, it, it's not unlike, I mean, to, to embrace uh, and, in a sense, worship individual achievement, innovation, right, creativity, self-expression, openness to cultural diversity. Uh, what, this, this, this is, these are meritocratic values. These are the so-called creative class values that have become kind of normative uh, over the, you know, in the post, post-50s America. And so I think that there's a larger context. You're, you're right. I mean, there's a larger context in which we can see that the foodie culture we're seeing is very much a very niche, perhaps, perhaps expression of these larger, of these larger uh, trends, which do have to do with uh, broader cultural economic uh, labor force trends that have to do with uh, the nature of of um, occupations, the increase in, um, the, you know, the so-called creative class, right, which basically is a term that, that I borrow from um, the economist Richard Florida, who is the one who's famous for this, this, this definition of, of creative class. He defines this class in terms of occupation, and types of occupations, uh, occupations that uh, are focused uh, or center on uh, ide- new idea development or uh, problem-solving skills that require high levels of education. Uh, this is the kind of work, and he, and he talks about this type of work being um, something that has expanded quite strongly since the 1950s, say, uh, that kind of work or those kinds of jobs were 15% of the labor force, whereas now they're about 30% of the labor force. And he makes a strong case, I think, of uh, about, about that that culture also being a leading um, a leading 
for uh, labor sector in the economy. Not uh, the the service sector actually is a larger. It's forty five percent of the labor force, but the creative class, which is thirty percent, which is less is a more decisive and leading um, trend-setting force because they tend to play more leading roles in the economy. And so they set norms more. This is kind of the argument that, that, that I think um, I'm trying to build on for, for, and apply to, to the culinary scene. And all of this is supported, I think, by um, trends. If you look at education, the boom in, in higher education, since the after the 1950s, uh, especially after the mid 60s, um, with the Higher Education Act, for instance, um, and ethnic diversification, uh, the concentration of education, income, and uh, ethnic diversity in urban areas, which starts to increase markedly since the 70s. By the way, uh, all of these things um, are shifts that are kind of affecting and shaping this. This culture, this particular meritocratic uh, culture and the um, upholding of nonconformity uh, as a dominant ethos, which is kind of a, fu- a complete paradox, right? I mean, nonconformity as a dominant ethos, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but 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 uh, but. But it's true. I mean, what we have a culture that says, uh, you know, think different, right? Break all the rules. <laughs> Break all the rules, right? I mean, if that if that doesn't say it, I don't know what does. So that's not just happening in in cuisine, right? It's happening in um, in 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 a larger uh, uh, cultural space. Well, given the fact that that your intellectual curiosity will range from what's on the plate to what's going on uh, in the repopulation of American cities, where are you turning to next now that you've completed this project? Well, I am I am deep into it right now. I'm as we speak, I am deep into a new project. Uh, it's a, a new book um, that is going to be take on the uh, restaurant menus and um, especially on the question uh, menus are fascinating fascinating documents by the way menus are I mean as graphic design as literature uh, as as uh, rhetoric you know as um, as sales pitches but also as kind of they're they're, they're like uh, theatrical programs and scripts as well uh, but menus are fascinating things uh, restaurant menus and uh, I'm going to deal with all kinds of genres. I'm going to break out of uh, the, the smart casual dealt with gourmet culture. This book is going to deal with every every kind of restaurant imaginable, um, but menus and the different uh, different genres of menus. And it's going to deal with the whole question of how uh, how choice is constructed in menus and how menus are uh, related to our. Uh, sort of the dynamics of consumer choice in our culture. So there will be a larger cultural angle there too, uh, but dealing with the menu. After all, the menu presents you with a choice, or at least it's it seems like it does. Well, I hope when you finish it, you'll come back and talk to us about it. I would love to. Alison Perlman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. My name is Eric LeMay. And you've been listening to an interview with Allison Perlman, author of Smart Casual, The Transformation of Gourmet Restaurant Style in America on the New Books Network.